If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with, God, with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with content is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out of it. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, patience, gentleness. Let's pray. Lord, I just uh, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and open up your word. Lord, and I just uh, I pray that each man's heart here tonight would be open to what you have to say. Lord, I just ask that we would come with open minds, open ears. Lord, fill us with your spirit. I just ask that you'd meet us here in this place tonight and that you would just guide us and direct us. In your name I pray. Amen. So, in this letter... Paul is sending this letter to Timothy. And three times in this letter, Paul is addressing the issues of the false teachers and the doctrine that they're bringing into the church to bring destruction upon the church. And each of these three times that Paul addresses the false teachers, he turns around and addresses Timothy. So what he's doing is he's saying, Timothy... Don't be like these false teachers. Don't be like these guys. But rather, you be like this. So that's what he's after. He's addressing Timothy on how he is to be different from the false teachers. He's showing him how to be a good servant. How he is to be a man of God. In verse 11, Paul here, he's making a strong contrast to what he had just said previously. He's telling Timothy, don't be like these false teachers who are sick in their doctrine, who are sick in their character, who are sick in their motives, who are sick in their greed. But you, Timothy, you are to be different. He says, but you, O man of God. That phrase, O man of God, is found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's only found twice in the New Testament. It's found sparingly in the Old Testament. It's used of just a few different guys. In the Old Testament, it's a phrase that is used of someone who is God's servant and someone who is God's mouthpiece. It's used of Moses, of David, of Elijah, of Elisha. So it carries the idea of a faithful servant of God who is also the mouthpiece of God. It's one who is, has been given the responsibility to proclaim the word of God to the people. So doesn't this apply to us as well? 
What did Jesus tell us to do in Matthew 28? He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So we've been given that responsibility as well. We've been given that responsibility to go proclaim the gospel, to go proclaim the good news to the people. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy. This is how he identifies Timothy. He says, O man of God, you faithful man, you faithful servant. He says, but you, O man of God, flee. Flee. What is that word flee? It means to run hard. It means to run fast. It means to run away from danger. That word flee in the Greek is fuego. It's where we get our word fugitive. So what Paul is telling Timothy is to run hard like a fugitive. Run fast like a fugitive. Run away from danger like a fugitive. Flee these things. What are these things? He's telling Timothy to flee the sinfulness of the false teachers. Flee their greed. Flee their immorality. Flee their compromise of God's word. He's telling Timothy to flee these things. Run away from these things. Get away from them. You know, as humans, we are designed to flee danger. We're designed to run from danger. Think about it. If you were to open your front door and there's a rattlesnake curled up on your front door ready to strike, what are you going to instinctively do? You're going to turn and run. You don't even have to think about it. You're going to do it. What if you're in a crosswalk and you see a car coming out and you see that car is not going to stop for you? What are you going to instinctively do? You're going to run. It's the autonomic nervous system that the Lord has given us. He designed us that way. It's the fight or flight syndrome to flee, to run from danger. When we see danger, we're going to run. But not all are we... uh, designed to flee from or run from danger. We're designed to flee towards blessing. We're to run to blessing. If there's a man standing on the street corner handing out a $100 bill to anybody that wants to come get it, what are you going to do? I'm going to run and go get that blessing. We want to gravitate towards blessing. That's what we do. So if we sense danger, we're going to run away. If we sense blessing, we're going to run towards blessing. So what Paul is doing here, he's saying these things are dangerous. Flee from these things. But my question is why? Why does Paul have to lay these things out? Shouldn't these types of things be obvious? So why does he have to do this? Think about it for a minute. How often in our own minds do we get these things confused? How often do we confuse what is a danger? What is a blessing? How often do we get them majorly confused? Confused to the point where we actually begin to see danger as maybe, you know what, it's some kind of blessing in my life. Maybe that danger is some kind of pleasure in my life. This is the warning that Paul's laying out here. What ends up happening so many times is it's our desires that we have within us that we start to think about, we start to see, and they start consuming us. They consume our thoughts. And we start to see that, oh, I mean, this danger here, maybe it's really not so bad. In fact, you know what? Kind of looks pleasurable. 
kind of looks like something I might want. I know George brought it up last night. I think it was George James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. What does it say? It says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So this thing that's a danger that I have convinced in my mind that I'm going after, that I've decided, yeah, I kind of want that. What ends up happening? Until I take it, until I'm hooked, I don't realize how dangerous it is. So Paul's laying it out. He's laying it out and he's saying, you flee from these things. You run from these things. You stay away from these things. So I want to ask you guys, what are these things for you? What are these things that you need to be fleeing from? What are the temptations right now that the enemy is using in you to say, oh, you know what, it's really not that dangerous? That thing that you're pursuing right now that you're thinking, you know what, it's really okay. Nobody's ever going to know. I can just take one look. It's okay. Nobody's ever going to know. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying you need to run from those things. How do we do this? How are we supposed to know what these things are? We have to program our mind. How? We have to constantly be in God's Word so that we can identify danger for danger. Because the world is not going to give us signs of danger. They aren't going to say, danger sign here, this is a danger. A danger sign over here. They aren't going to do it. What's the world going to do, though? It's going to say, if you do this, you'll be successful. Or if you acquire this, then you're going to be satisfied. And they're going to say, the world's going to say, these are good things. You should pursue these things. But we need to be in God's Word to help us understand that these are dangers and that these dangers lead us to death. So we need to be in His Word. We need to be in fellowship with one another. We need to be surrounded by each other, sharpening each other like iron sharpens iron. We need to be sharing God's Word in each other's lives. We need to be in prayer for each other. We need to be hearing from the voice of God so that we know what is a danger and what is a blessing. So that we love what God loves and we hate what He hates. And so that we don't get those two things confused. So what is it? What is it in your life that you need to flee from? I want you to keep that in your mind as we go through this tonight. Not only is it, though, that we need to flee something, but pursue. What are we to pursue? We're to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. We've already taken a look at the first three, so we're going to start tonight by pursuing love. What does it mean to pursue love? That word love in the Greek is the agape love. It's the self-sacrificing love. It's the love that sacrifices for the sake of others and expects nothing in return. It seeks to give. It does not seek to gain. It's the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. It's when Jesus tells us what the greatest commandment is, to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and to love others. 
What does it mean to pursue patience? What is patience? Patience is steadfastness. It's patient endurance. It's being able to walk through life. It's being able to walk through circumstances. It's being able to walk through hardships. Trusting in the Lord in faith. Because you realize as you're walking through this, He is sovereign in that circumstance. You know that He sees what we don't see. And He's going to bring us through. We just have to trust in Him. Gentleness. What is gentleness? It's meekness. It's power under control. Jesus gives the best example. Think about it. Even though He had the ability to do whatever He wanted to do, He allowed himself to suffer and die for us on a cross. That's gentleness. That is power under control. These are all qualities. All six of these are virtues that we need to be different. We need to have these so that we can be different from the false teachers. These are all characteristics. They're all qualities of Jesus. So what Paul is saying here when he says pursue these things... He's really saying that we need to be pursuing Jesus. Is that your greatest desire? Is your greatest desire to pursue Jesus Christ? Is your greatest desire to become more like Him? Is your greatest desire to become more like Him in your character, in your behavior, in your actions, in your thoughts? Is that your greatest desire? Sometimes it's easy to say, yeah, that is my greatest desire. When we're sitting in an environment like this, yeah, that's my greatest desire. But I want you, what I want you to do as we go through this study, when your mind starts to wander, I want you to ask yourself, what is it wandering to? Is it wandering to your job? Is it wandering to your family? Is it wandering to your career? Are you in school? Is it wandering to what's going on in school? Whatever it is, whatever it's wandering to, I want you to ask you, is that really my greatest desire? Or is Jesus my greatest desire? So, pursuing love. What does pursuing love look like? Jesus gives us the best example that there is. Why don't you turn with me to John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, at this point, Jesus, where He's at in His ministry, He is only hours from going to the cross. His crucifixion is coming up. So what's He going to do? He's going to gather His disciples around Him and He's going to give them His last instructions. And from this point on, in the next few chapters, what He's going to do is He's going to stress over and over and over again that love is the key. I want you to go to the, uh, towards the end of chapter 13 real quick, and then we're going to come back to the beginning. In verse 34, he gives them a new commandment. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So he gives them a new commandment. He gives them a commandment to love one another. I want you to notice that he does not give them a commandment to be more zealous. He doesn't give them a commandment to be more dedicated. He doesn't give them a commandment to be more committed, but he gives them a commandment to love one another. Love is the key. 
Now, before he gives this new commandment to them, before he gives this teaching to them, he gives them an example. Let's go back to the uh, verse 1. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which, with, with which he was girded. It says back in verse 1 that he loved them. He loved them to the end. To the end there, that phrase in the Greek is aistelos. Aistelos means to the uttermost. So he loved them to the uttermost. What does it mean to love to the uttermost? It means to love freely without reserve. It means to love without limit. It means to love without flaw or failure. And this is what he did. This was Jesus' unrelenting love for us when he went to the cross. He loved them to the uttermost. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. He loved them with no limit. Now, think about it for a minute. Jesus knew who these guys were that were sitting around that table with them at the Last Supper. He was aware of their past. He was aware of what they've said. He knew who they were. James and John said, let's call down fire from heaven and kill these people that aren't responding to you. Nathaniel, when he had heard of Jesus, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? James and John had pride and arrogance. They wanted to sit at his right hand and at his left hand. Jesus knew who these guys were that were sitting around that table with him. He knew what they had done, but he also knew what they were going to do. At the end of this chapter, Peter said, I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answers him in verse 38. He says, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So in this, Jesus was saying, I know what you're going to do. I know that you're going to deny me. That night, all of his disciples would desert him. And Judas was going to betray him. So he knew who these guys were. He knew what they had done, and he knew what they were going to do. Yet it still says that he loved them. That he loved them to the uttermost. Now, I want you to get a picture of what's going on here. This is the Last Supper. They're sitting in the upper room. Luke tells us in his Gospel that as they're sitting there eating this Last Supper, that a dispute arose among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Now, have you ever been around anybody that knows everything, is arrogant? That's what these guys were right here. How does it make you feel when you're around those people? And what did Jesus do here? 
They were arguing and fighting about which one of them was the greatest. So these disciples, being as broken as they were, and Jesus, knowing how broken they were, he still loved them. Now, the custom of that day would have been, as people were traveling and going into somebody's home or into somebody's room, they would have washed their feet. Normally, if a servant was there, a servant would have washed them. If not, somebody else would have humbled themselves to wash the feet. In this case, nobody did. Now, their roads were dirt roads. When it was dry, they were dusty. Their feet would have been full of dust. But what happens when it rains? It's muddy. And as you, some of you guys know that have livestock... Animals use these roads as well. And what happens when you walk across the corral after it's rained? What do your boots look like? These disciples wore sandals. So the people of that day, their feet would have been dirty. They would have been filthy. Now, in this case, no one humbled themselves to wash the other's feet. So as they were sitting there eating a meal and arguing about who was the greatest, it says that Jesus loved them. Now, he could have just gotten up and walked out of that room in disgust. But what does he do instead? He looks on them and he loves them to the uttermost. Why? Why does God love them? Or better yet, why does he love us? We know who we are. Why does he love us? This is a question I have struggled with for the last couple weeks. Why does he love me? And the answer I came to is I don't know. I really don't know. How could he love somebody like me? And I don't think we will ever be able to know or to have that answer sufficiently. I don't think we can get it. But what I do know, though, is that God does not love us because we are lovable or because we deserve his love. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 12 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. This, there is none who does good, no, not one. So then, how is it possible for a holy, righteous, and perfect God to love us? 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 and 16 tells us that God is love. God just doesn't love. He is love. It's his nature. It's his essence. He demonstrates his love by lavishing it on us, on undeserving people. By sending his son to the cross to die for us. By forgiving us of our rebellion against him. And by sending his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, thereby enabling us to love as he loves Now, if God can love us, can we love the people around us? We can through His Spirit, yeah. 
But what I want to ask you is, who is it in your life that you have a hard time loving? Just think about it. So I'll tell you, there's some guys that I have a hard time loving. One of them, I'm sure nobody of you know him. His name is Danny Martinez. Six years ago this May, he shot my brother's partner and killed him in Phoenix, Arizona. It was a setup. It was an ambush. There was, he hit several cars on hit-and-runs deals, got the cops to chase him to his house, was waiting behind his house with a rifle. Killed him. That was that guy's, that police officer's first night back on. Two weeks off, his first child had just been born. But we're called to love that guy. I can't do it. It has to be God working through me. That's the only way, the only way that I can love him. That's what we're called to do. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is personal. He knows each of us individually and loves us personally. So really, why does God love us? It's because of who he is. God is love. Now as we sit here tonight, I know we are aware of who we really are, each of us. We know. If we ask ourselves, we really know who we are. We know what we've done. We know who we are right now. We know the problems that we have. And we know that we're still going to mess up in the future. We know that. But in light of all this, Jesus looks on all of us just as he looked on them. He loved them just as he loves us to the end, to the uttermost. I tell you what, for this reason, I'm extremely grateful. Can't even put it into words how grateful I am for that love. Verse 2. It says, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So why is this even put here? It's a contrast. It's a contrast of the hatred of Judas versus the love of Jesus. Verse 3 goes on to say, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into, the hand, into his hands. So Jesus had all things under his power. And he knew what Judas was going to do. This here is a picture of what it is to be gentle, gentleness. Think about it. Jesus could have annihilated him right there on the spot if he wanted to. But what does he do instead? He washes his feet even though he's going to stab him in the back that night. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments. So, Jesus, knowing all this, what does he do? In the middle of the supper... He stands up, takes off his outer garments, girds himself with a towel, poured water into a basin, and washed the feet of these bickering, arguing, broken disciples. He washes their feet as an example of true love. Now, in this example, I think there's four components that we can get out of it that are gonna, can help us learn how to love 
those around us like he has asked us to do. The first one is we have to be free to be able to love. So even as the disciples are arguing, even as Judas is getting ready to betray him, Jesus was able to love them. Why? Where will you, where will I have that ability? Where will we have that ability to love? Look at what it says again in verse 3. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. So Jesus knew where he came from. He knew that he came from God and he knew where he was going. He was going to God. So he was secure. He was secure with his past. He was secure with his future. So he was free to love in the present. So if you're struggling with past mistakes in your life right now, mistakes that you've made yesterday, mistakes that you made last week, mistakes that you made last month, mistakes that you made 10 years ago, and are not seeking repentance for it, you will not be able to love. You will not be free to love. Why? Because if you're walking in unrepentance, as Galatians says, that means you're walking in the flesh. And if you're walking in the flesh, you cannot be walking in the Spirit, which means you will not have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. You will not be free to walk in love if you're living in that past guilt. But the good news is, though, if you call on the name of the Lord, He will forgive you of those sins, and you can be free. Every sin that you've ever done, you can be absolutely at peace with your past. Not because of any perfection in us, but because of the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. The Bible says in Romans 8.1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 5.1 tells us that we have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. So I have, if I have faith that the Lord died for my sins, I don't have to worry about my past. I'm free to love. I have peace, and I'm free to love. Now, not only do I have to be free from my past, but I also need to be free of the future. I can't worry about tomorrow. What if I don't get that job? What if I lose my job? What if I can't pass that test that's coming up? What if I can't pay my bills? What if, what if, what if? We can what if ourselves to death. If you're living in the future, you're going to miss the opportunity to love in the present. If I'm so focused on tomorrow, I cannot see what's going on today. You will be eaten up by thinking about what could possibly come tomorrow. You will be unable to see what's going on around you. <clears throat> so what did Paul tell us about this, though? Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. It's a command. 
It's a command, do not be anxious. He's telling us don't be worried. He's saying don't stress out. It's not God's intent for us to be anxious. But after he gives this command, he goes right on from there and tells us how to do it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, give it to God. So what does this mean? It means that every anxiety you have, every worry that you have, it needs to be taken to the Lord. So when you're afraid, when you're confused, just go to the Lord in prayer. He wants us to trust Him. He wants us to take everything to Him. Now, if you believe this, if you believe that I can really say that my past, by faith in Jesus, has been taken care of, and that my future, my hope is in Him, I can trust Him. And I don't have to worry about tomorrow. This frees me to love in the present. It frees me to love right now. So this is why Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, at the end of the chapter, he says, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Because faith takes care of the past. I have faith that he took care of all my past sins. Hope takes care of the future. I have hope that he's watching out for me. He knows what's going on. I can trust in him. And this leads me to love in the present. Now notice here, it says in verse 3, it says, Jesus knowing he had come from God, so he knew where he came from, and he was going to God, so he knew where he was going. He was free to love these guys. It's the first thing we have to have. We have to be free to be able to love. Second thing that we need to realize is that there is a cost to love. What did it cost Jesus? Well, first of all, he was interrupted. He was sitting there at the dinner, and he got up to serve the disciples. He was interrupted from his meal. So, if you're going to answer the call that Jesus has given us to love people, it is going to mean interruptions in your life. And I guarantee you, your phone will ring when you are busy doing something else. Because when are we not busy doing something else? And something that I have learned, that when I have a self-centered attitude, when that phone rings, it's never at a good time. Now, I know most of us have cell phones that have caller ID on them. And we all have those people that we know when they call and we see that name, you go, I wonder what he wants this time. So when you see that name on your phone, how do you respond to it? You go, come on. Give me a break. I don't have time for this right now. Or do you go, great, I get an opportunity to love on this guy. How do you respond when you see those phone calls? I know how I respond and it's not so good. If you're going to be someone who loves, you are going to have to be willing to be interrupted. So, a question for you. Do you put your needs or your wants first, or do you put the needs of others first? It's going to cost you to love. It says here that while the meal was going on, Jesus being aware of their need, he responded to the opportunity. 
When the opportunity is there, do we take it? Not only was he interrupted, but he got involved with them. He was involved in their lives. So instead of telling these guys that they needed to wash their feet, that they needed to go clean their feet, what did he do? He got down on his hands and knees and he cleaned them. He washed their feet. So I'm going to tell you, if you're not willing to wash feet, when you see the dirt on somebody, keep your mouth closed. Because what we got to do if we're willing to wash feet, we have to get on our hands and knees. We got to get on our knees in prayer, and we got to get on our hands and knees, and we have to be willing to help them. If you're not willing to do this, and you are talking about it, all it is is you're judging them and you're just gossiping about them. None of that's going to have any good consequences. So Jesus didn't just point out the dirt. He got involved and he did something about it. Now, the third thing. Notice that he did not announce what he was going to do. He didn't stand up and say, watch me. You're now going to see love in action. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. So when you're serving people, do you make sure that everybody around you knows what you're doing? Because if you are, that's not love. Jesus, he just quietly got up and did it. Washed their feet. Now, these guys were not the easiest guys to get along with. It wasn't like they were doing a lot of great things for him. Nathaniel, he didn't believe him. Thomas doubted him. Peter was going to deny him. Judas was going to stab him in the back. These guys are just like the guys that are around us every day, aren't they? They are broken just like we are. Jesus just gets up quietly and goes and washes their feet because he loved them. He loved them to the end. See, God doesn't love us because we are lovable, but because he is love. And with Christ in me, I can love those people that are around me. So the fourth thing that's in this, why don't you take a look at verse 6. It says, then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. So something that we run into when we try to love on people is difficulties. They just won't let you. When you go to love on them, they don't want to have any part of it. Um, last week, last Sunday in Sunday school, had two kids walk into church that were in my Sunday school class that had never been in church in their life before. They were deathly afraid to be there. Jason and I had talked to them. We found them when they came in. And we brought them in there. Jason sat with them for a while so that they would feel comfortable. Once they started interacting with me and started asking questions, I changed it and just started presenting the gospel to them. It got to the point, though, where we ran out of time. 
The parents were there waiting. And I told those two boys, if you still have questions, please stay. I will talk with you. They said, no, we don't want it. It's not up to me, though. But it is frustrating. It can be awfully frustrating when people don't want the help that you're, or the love that you're willing to give them. <coughs> I want you to look at the other side of this, though. Verse 8, halfway through. It says, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So some people, what do they do? When you try to help them out, when you try to love on them, then they expect everything from you. They will tell you that you need to do this or you need to do that or you're not being a good Christian. Or sometimes people will tell you, I thought you were a Christian. I have had this happen to me. And it's just not on the trivial stuff that I'm talking about. I had somebody call me and say, we're going to lose our house. We need you to bail us out and buy the house from us. And I said, I can't do that. And they said, well, we thought you were a Christian. I said, well, being a Christian has got nothing to do with it. But what will they do? They will put demands on you. They will manipulate you to get more from you than they really need. And what ends up happening is we just enable those people when what do they really need? They need God's love. So sometimes the loving thing to say is no. You know, we can't be the solution to all of their problems. They need to learn to trust on the Lord, not just trust in people. So it's like Jesus told Peter here, I can wash your feet. Yeah, I can help you with that. But you don't need a bath. So how do you deal with this? How do you deal with a situation like this? And it's simply, you just seek the Lord and you do what you feel like he's telling you to do. So this is the model. This is the model that Jesus gave us to show us how we are to love those that are around us. So how do we love people? First, we've got to know we have to be free from our past and we've got to be free from our future. We have to be free to be able to love. We have to know going into it that love is going to cost us. We've got to know there's going to be difficulties. There just is. Now what I want you to do is jump down to verse 12. It says, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? So he's saying, Do you know or do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So this model that Jesus has shown us, it's great. But how or what does it mean? For us here today. He says here in verse 17, he says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So if you do these things, he's saying you will be happy. So as you sit here tonight, let me ask you, are you happy? Are you truly happy? Or are you sitting here wondering, why am I so depressed? Why am I so disheartened? Why am I so discouraged? Why am I so disappointed? And if that's you, what would Jesus say to you here? 
This is what he would say. He says, don't you see what I have done? Don't you know what this means? Blessed or happy are you if you do them. So he's saying, you will be happy if you do them. If you do what I have done. He didn't say, not if you know what I have done. He didn't say, not if you agree with what I have done. But he said, if you do what I have done, you will be happy. Now think about this. Jesus said, you will be happy. So is this a true or false statement? Who said it? Jesus. So I got to go with it's true. So if it's true, then we got to believe it. So the next time that you're feeling so depressed or you're so sad or so discouraged that you just want to say, that's it, I've had it, what do you need to do? You need to find some feet to wash. Go serve someone. So what does it look for us? It may not be washing feet. It may be washing somebody's car. Maybe washing somebody's window. It may be mowing somebody's grass. Whatever the need is that you see needs to be done. And the Lord puts it on your heart to do it. You go do it. <coughs> Don't be so self-centered that you can't see what is going on around you. You know, we have an opportunity to put a smile on someone's face. Now I want you to jump back to the end of the chapter, to back to 34 where we started. Verse 34. A new commandment I give you to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So here, on the night before his death, Jesus is telling the disciples that their lives need to be marked with love. Specifically with love one for another. And this is the same love that we talked about earlier. It's the agape love. It's the self-sacrificing love. It's the love that's looking for nothing in return. Now, the command to love, it isn't really a new one, is it? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And in Leviticus 19, 18, it says, But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus affirms these verses in Matthew 22. He calls these the greatest and the second greatest commandment. So what made this new? Jesus gave it a new standard. Jesus said the new standard was, as I have loved you. He gave us the example of what it was to love. Jesus himself was standing, setting the standard of what it was like, what it looked like to really love. That standard is the ultimate love, that sacrificial love with no conditions. Love that doesn't expect anything in return. Why don't you turn with me real quick to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each, one, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So this is the example that Jesus gives us. That even in my sin, 
he shed his blood for me. He shed his blood for every sinner that lived, every sinner that's living right now, and every sinner that's going to live. This is the love that he called us to. This is the love that sacrifices for everything, expecting nothing in return, not caring about our own selves, but caring about those that are around us. So, when we see the needs of those that are around us, or rephrase that, if when we see our needs, do we see those same needs in those that are around us? Now, if we were to take Jesus serious about this command, we would not only have to love others as ourselves, but we would also have to love others instead of ourselves. If we're going to love, it's going to cost us. We're going to have to lay something aside to love those around us. So how do we walk in this self-sacrificing love? That love that literally neglects our own needs for the sake of someone else. How do we sacrifice our comfort, our well-being for somebody else? Where does this power come from? Romans 5 again says, Now, now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So it's God himself that has empowered us to love as he loves. So, where am I going with this? It's the day by day growing in love with God in us. That is the only way that we can get over ourselves. The more we see God's love and pursue Him, then the more we know Him. And the more we know Him, then the more we know the sin and we see the sin exposed in our lives. And as we see that selfish sin exposed in our lives, then we're able to put it off for the sake of others. So the new standard of love is Jesus. He is our perfect example. The pursuit of this love is an abandonment of our desires and an acceptance of God's will. Jesus loved the Father and the Father's will for his life more than he loved himself. God gave him the strength he needed to love this way. The example that Jesus gives us is a total love for God's heart. So what was the intent of this new commandment? Take a look at verse 35, back in chapter 13 of John. It says, By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All. So Jesus here, he's thinking of the masses. Jesus wants the truth of his life and the truth of his gospel to go out to everyone. So Jesus is saying, people will know that our message is true if they see how it has transformed our lives. So when they see the humility and the the self-sacrificing love like Jesus in us, they will know that only Jesus can empower a person to live like that. This is faith made visible and the gospel message is validated. This is how people see it. It's the love that's coming through us. It's his love. But we know something else. We know that this is lacking. It's lacking in us. And it's a problem. How much time, how much effort do you spend pursuing people in love? 
compared to the time that you spend focusing on yourselves? How much time do we take on taking on their problems and making their messy problems our own? We need to be pursuing people with this kind of love, that self-sacrificing love that says, what can I do for you? Do we care about our brothers? Do we care about our sisters in a way that the world would marvel at us? Christians are the only ones equipped to love in this way because it comes from the Lord. That's the only way it comes. So if someone was to look at this group of guys here tonight, what would they see? Would they see love for one another in the way that Jesus showed us? Or would they see a group of guys who are self-centered and worry about themselves? Or, let's ask the question again, what if someone was to look at you tonight? What would they see? Would they see that same kind of love that Jesus had for his disciples? Or would they see someone who's self-centered and more worried about himself? Our lives are to be more than just talk. Now, John was one of those disciples that was sitting there around that table, and he got it. Because look what he wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. I'm going to read it to you real quick. It says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So the people of the world, they're going to know the love of Jesus is true if they see the generous love of Jesus practiced. Practiced. Not just in work or talk, but in deed. This is the purpose of the command. That's why he's given it to us. So our pursuit for God has to consume us. It has to consume us every day. It has to be our primary concern for every day. We need to be chasing after the Lord day by day. So pursuing Jesus, is that your greatest desire tonight? Or did your minds wander to something else during the last 55 minutes? Is it your greatest desire to become more like him in your character, to become more like him in your behavior, to become more like him in your thoughts, to become more like him in your actions? Only you guys can answer that for yourselves. Or is there something you need to flee from? Is there something you need to run from like a fugitive running? Or are there past mistakes that are holding on to you that you have not repented of? These are the questions I want you to think about as we go to prayer. Lord, I just thank you for your word, Lord. I just thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I ask tonight that you would uh, work on each of our lives, Lord, that we would just have that love that you had for us. We are just in awe of who you are and what you have done for us. We don't deserve what you gave us, Lord. 
And I don't think we can ever fathom what you did for us. Lord, I pray that the people around us would see your love come through us. Lord, I pray if there's any hindrances in our lives, any past mistakes that we've made that we have not repented of, Lord, I pray that you would convict us of those souls right now, that you would just uh, fill us with your spirit, Lord. Just help us to understand that we can trust in you and you can take care of those for us. You have already taken care of them. Lord, I just pray that we would call on you, that we would seek you in everything that we would do. Lord, I pray that we would glorify you above all and that you would be our God. In your name I pray, amen. Hey, we're going to have opportunity to uh, um, celebrate several things as we